This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Get our hearts ready for God's Word this morning. Lord, we thank you that we have these moments to share together your precious Word. And we pray that you will enlighten us, that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth of what we are going to say today. We thank you, Lord, for your Word. We thank you, Lord, that it's powerful. We thank you that it's accurate and true. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Lord, this is your word. It's not our word. It's your word. And we pray, O oh God, as we listen, as we read together, that you will inspire us and challenge us. Amen. And Lord, that we can see ourselves in some of these things that we're talking about these past few weeks for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 10. And Luke chapter 6. You put a finger in there just for a moment. Matthew 10, Luke 6, verse 1 of Matthew 10. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname is Thaddeus, <coughs> Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And then on Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel that is too, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who, is, who also became a traitor. Now, this morning we want to, uh, for those of you who are visiting and doesn't know this, we are in the midst of a series uh, looking at the lives of the Christ's 12 apostles. And uh, we're getting through them well so far. We've had a few little breaks, and we'll have one next week as well, but we're working our way through them. And we've looked at Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. And uh, we're coming now to the last four. And of the last four, three of them are the most obscure of Christ's apostles. That is to say that the Bible says hardly anything at all about them. The last one, of course, is Judas Iscariot. And he's always mentioned last, so we will leave him to the last. He is the most controversial of all of the apostles, and we'll do that right at the very end. Now, this morning, we want to focus our attention on Simon uh, called the Zealot. And then hopefully tonight, we want to look at the other two obscure ones, uh, uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, 
and Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas, <laughs> son of James. And then we'll finish up then with Judas Iscariot uh, next week. Now, they only mention this particular Simon gets because there was two Simons, Simon Peter and this Simon. The only mention he gets in Scripture is in the four lists of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite, and Luke calls him Simon Zelotes. Both these names indicate for us that he was a member of the Galilean Zealot party. Now, the term Canaanite here is not referring, as you may think it would be, to anything geographical. It's not, it's not referring to the land of Cana. It's not even referring to uh, the little town of Cana of Galilee. Uh, the word is translated from a Greek word into the Aramaic, K-A-N-A-N, K-A-N-A-N, which simply means zealot. So when he's called Simon the Canaanite, it's just another term for Simon the Zealot, or Simon Zelotes, as the other gospel writer uh, called him. Now in Palestine, in those days, there were a number of uh, particular groups, and you'll see them mentioned throughout the scripture. Uh, one of them, of course, the most famous of a lot was the Pharisees. Uh, Pharisee means separated one. And the Pharisees were the, I suppose, the ultra-fundamentalists of their day. Uh, they were absolutely meticulous to the nth degree when it came to the law. In fact, as far as the Ten Commandments are concerned, that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to hedge and protect the Ten Commandments, so they made up a lot more commandments that even God hadn't put in the Bible. So that's, that's what they were like. And in fact, they had 613. Over the years, uh, they accrued 613 uh, other commandments. None of them you can find in the Bible. These was devised by, by rabbis. And sometimes what they would take was maybe a commandment in the Bible, and they would spin that out and interpret their own way and make all kinds of laws out of that. And, uh, you know, they had 365 uh, prohibitions. Uh, that would be based on the thou shalt nots. 365, one for every day of the year. They had uh, 248 uh, positive ones. And they said that related to the, the number of bones in your body and the number of vital organs in your body. And, and so that's what they were like. And woe betide anybody who broke any of those rules, those man-made rules. And so they were the Pharisees. And uh, Jesus was always clashing with the Pharisees because they put burdens upon people that nobody could keep, never mind themselves. And uh, Jesus was continually uh, arguing and fighting against uh, those Pharisees. Uh, the Sadducees. The Sadducees would, if it was today, they would be the, the liberal wing of the church. Uh, they didn't believe much that the Pharisees believed at all. They did not believe in anything of the supernatural, did not believe in the resurrection, and certainly never would have believed in the virgin birth in a million, a million years. And so they were, uh, were ultra-liberal, could we say. But they were aristocratic. They were, they were very, very rich. They were wealthy people and had a lot of influence. And their main job was to take care of the temple. And so that's why you'll find when Jesus was in the temple teaching and preaching, that's where he was always clashing with the Sadducees. That was their domain. And so they're always listening and looking for ways to, to trip him up or to, cause, to get something he did or said and to try to trick him and try to arrest him or whatever. So they were very much, of course, against the Lord Jesus. And then there was the Essenes. 
And the Essenes were, uh, they were, if you, if you think that the Pharisees was the separated ones, these was the ultra-separated ones. They even separated themselves from the Pharisees. And they lived a, a, a communal life. Even if they're in a the city, they would all commune together. But mostly they lived outside the cities, totally rejected materialism, had no time for it. Uh, dressed very, very simply, ate simply, and their priests were always celibate, and they studied the law meticulously too, but they kept themselves to themselves, away from everybody else, out of this world, and away from the religious establishment also. They were the scenes that Raggins that, you know, and Qumran, where they, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, sometimes that's attributed to them, hiding them in there. Be that as it may, that seems to be a tradition. And then there was the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, uh, as a group, are not really mentioned in Scripture per se, but they were the followers and the supporters of the Herod dynasty. And the Herods, as you know, if you, anybody has read through the Scriptures in the New Testament, you'll know that the Herods were a bad lot. They were puppet kings of Rome. And they were there like a kind of a buffer zone between the rule of Rome and the ordinary everyday rule of the Jews in Israel. And uh, they, they were wicked. I mean, they were bloodthirsty. They, they thought nothing of even murdering their own family members, and they did that. And, and you remember that Herod the Great was the one who, who caused those little children to die under two years and old, the little boys in Bethlehem trying to find the Christ child to, to murder him. And of course, uh, Herod Antipas was the one who slew John the Baptist, cut off his head. And then Herod Agrippa was the one who killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so there was a whole history of, of bloodthirstiness within the Herod dynasty. The positive side of the Herods was they were great builders. And, they, and Herod the Great was the one who rebuilt uh, uh, Solomon's temple and made a magnificent job of it too. And they built other places. So that was the other side of them. And so there was always clashes, of course, uh, with the Herod dynasty as well. And then, uh, lastly, the Zealots. Now, Josephus says that the Zealots, they were a disparate band. Uh, these, were, these were people who absolutely hated with a passion Rome ruling them. As far as they were concerned, uh, only God, Jehovah, was the ruler of Israel. The only government was God's government. And anything that usurped that, then they were dead against and anybody who sided with Rome, anybody who collaborated with Rome, uh, who assisted Rome in any way, then they would be against them also. They would count them as traitors to the nation and traitors to God, actually. And so the zealots were very passionate activists politically, and behind the scenes, they were a shadowy group many times, and uh, uh, there were no pacifists. Uh, I mean, they force of argument, they had long since given that up. It was force of arms as far as they were concerned. They would do anything to rid their nation of these pagan Romans who had desecrated and despoiled their land. Uh, and should that mean assassinating politicians, assassinating Roman soldiers, or anybody who collaborated with the Roman armies, then they would do that. Uh, they would kill you in a heartbeat. That's who they were, the zealots. And uh, they longed for a Messiah. They desperately wanted a Messiah to come. That's what their great hope was. But while they were waiting, uh, they wanted to get rid of any Roman rule in the land. 
Now, they had a leader named Judas the Galilean. And, and under Judas, they revolted against Rome, and they revolted against the Roman army. And the reason why they did this is because a Roman uh, ruler came into Palestine at this time and imposed a census tax upon the people. Now, you have to understand that everywhere where Rome, every country Rome conquered, they taxed them to the hilt. They taxed them to the blade. And, and, and that fed their armies, that funded their projects. They'd go to another nation, they would tax them, that would fund something else, particularly in Rome, and particularly Caesar himself. And, uh, and so he comes in, this procurator comes in, he announces another census tax. Now, every Jew was bound to pay two tithes, a double tithe. A tithe is 10% of your income. They had to pay two tithes, one for the tribe of Levi, for the upkeep of the Levites, and one for the upkeep of the temple. Plus Roman taxes on top of that, plus here's a procurator, and he's putting another tax on top of that. So you can imagine this was a big, big issue of the day, and particularly for the zealots. And so they were rising up against this. And Reagan's now between 30 and 40% that Jews were being taxed at this time. And most of them were poor. Most of them couldn't afford this at all. And so you can see the anger and the hurt that within these people and the zealots, they, they weren't going to take this line down. And so they began to rise up against this Judas of, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas of Galilee. Judas Iscariot was from Judea. Judas of Galilee, he, he, was, the, he was the ringleader, as it were. And he, he got this band of zealots, and they began to attack Roman soldiers, and they killed hundreds of them. You know, they were quite well organized. Uh, th this whole idea, by the way, of this taxation, and maybe this will make more sense uh, now when you read this scripture. In Matthew 22, let me just show you this. In Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care for anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. And so they're, they're trying to shine Jesus on here. You know, they're, they're, saying, they're saying, well, say the right things. They didn't believe this for one second, that he was true or anything. They'd hated him, despised him. Of course, Jesus knew their hearts. Uh, then they said, listen, they said, verse 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So this was a big issue of the day. This was the big talking point all over the country. And so they wanted to drag Jesus into this to see if they could some way trick him up. And he said to them, so, sorry, but Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, well, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and they left him and they went their way. Jesus had an answer to every question they ever posed to him. And that was a good answer, wasn't it? And so this Roman tax stirred things up and they began to attack, killing many Romans, these zealots did, 
anyone who got in their way. They were not afraid of death themselves. As far as they were concerned, uh, death was preferable to dishonor. And so that's where they got this zeal from in order to get their nation back to what they believed it should be. However, Rome, as you know, was very, very powerful. They had the greatest army in the face of the earth, highly trained, highly equipped, and it wasn't too long before the Roman authorities said, well, enough's enough. And they came in and they crushed that rebellion of the zealots, and they killed Judas the Galilean and his sons, and thinking that would stop the zealots, but then those who remained, those who were left, they simply went underground and became like a guerrilla force. And according to the historian Josephus, they formed a secret assassination squad called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii means the dagger man. And so they would go about with a dagger in their cloak and in the folds of their dresses. And they would walk up quietly to a Roman soldier or a politician or anybody they thought was a collaborator and they would just swiftly take the dagger out and stick it through their ribs right into their heart and they would drop dead at their feet they put the dagger back and just quietly walk away and they would do that regularly to the place where the people were really really afraid of them you never knew who was going to get struck next you never knew where they were going to strike next because they were very secretive in doing this and so these dagger men, these zealots, the assassination squad, they would slip through the crowds and just kill wherever they thought they could. Some historians blame the fanaticism of these zealots uh, for the downfall of Jerusalem because Titus came in in AD 70 and he absolutely just raised Jerusalem to the ground, burnt the temple with fire, drove them out of there, took hundreds of thousands captive, killed tens of thousands. And uh, some historians blame that the zealots, that's what caused Rome to react the way they reacted. Be that as it may, uh, here are the zealots. Though for those of you who have been to Israel, I know that some of you have been up to Masada, uh, down way down south in Israel near the Red Sea, and how that, uh, sorry, the Dead Sea, and how that the zealots were the ones who had held out against the Romans at Masada for months and months and months until Rome built a rampart up and came in uh, to overtake them. But when they got there, when they did get in, they discovered that almost a thousand, I think it was 950 or some of these zealots had taken their own lives rather than surrender and be crucified by Romans. They took their own lives when they knew there was no other way out. And so Simon was one of these zealots. Perhaps he was in the assassination squad, we can't know for sure, but he certainly was very active as a zealot and had much hatred and bitterness and anger in his heart against Rome and against anything that was Roman, hated it with a passion. But then he became a disciple of Jesus, became an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a mighty change came into his life. We know nothing of his parentage. We know nothing of his profession or social status. No words of Simon are ever recorded, either from him or to him. But somehow this political firebrand, this possible murderer 
assassin, paramilitarist is what he would have been. Terrorist, freedom fighter, call him what you will. That was Simon. But somehow, somewhere, someday, he met Christ and his life was radically changed. And all of that anger and bitterness and hatred and murder in his heart against Rome was suddenly taken away. And he became a great man of God, a great follower of Jesus Christ. How this happened, we're not sure. Probably, like most of the disciples, probably he'd heard John the Baptist preach. And John the Baptist preached, as I said before, a thunderous message of repentance, trying to bring the people back to God, for they were far from God, and the religious establishment was the farthest from God. They really were. And they were hypocrites. Jesus called them out several times. And so John the Baptist preached repentance to bring the nation back to God, and he preached about the Messiah who was coming. And maybe that's what caused Simon the Zealot when he maybe heard the Baptist preach and heard about the Messiah that was coming, because that's what his heart longed for, the Messiah to come. Uh, but then he met the Messiah. He met the Lord Jesus. And we don't know when or where, but he met him. And obviously Jesus, like he did with the other disciples, he, he obviously challenged him and just said to him, come, follow me. You know, before that, his hero was Judas of Galilee. Now it's Jesus of Galilee. It's a different Galilean now. And he's very different than Judas the Galilean. He's full of compassion and love and mercy and full of forgiveness. And when he met this Galilean, his life was irrevocably changed. He never would be the same again. Just as those of us, as Clifford said earlier this morning, those of us who met Christ, we have never been the same again either. And he dealt with our hearts like he did with Simon the Zealot's heart. And so he witnessed Jesus healing the sick, feeding the 5,000, even raising the dead. He heard the words of Jesus. No man ever spoke like this man. He was not likely a religious establishment. He was not a phony or a hypocrite or a fraud because that's what Simon would think of all of those Pharisees and Sadducees. No, this man was a real deal. This man loved the people, and the people loved him. He connected with the ordinary man on the street, not like those Pharisees who went out with their long robes and prayed long prayers publicly to be seen of men. Jesus wasn't like that at all. And that attracted this man to this Galilean. He was different than anyone he had ever met. And his heart was knitted together with Christ. And eventually, over time, he became one of Christ's great apostles. Now use your imaginations for a moment. Imagine Jesus coming with Simon the Zealot to his little group that he's forming now of disciples and apostles and introducing him into the group. Simon the Zealot. Imagine what Matthew the tax collector thought of that. <laughs> because Matthew the tax collector had been a traitor to his own people. 
Matthew the tax collector had been a paid servant of Rome against his own people. I mean, before this, Simon the Zealot probably had a slitty throat for him if it had got him. And I'm sure Matthew the tax collector was on the Zealot's hit list. I'm sure he was, because he would be a number one target. But now he's coming into this close-knit little group. And what a change. What a change there was in Simon. What a change there was in Matthew. Now there are brothers. Now there wouldn't be, Matthew wouldn't be afraid of him, and Simon wouldn't hate him. They would be brothers in Christ. And it's amazing in our little land that's been so full of paramilitarism and so full of groups of this, that, and the other. It's amazing how over the years that many of them have found Christ and have become brothers in Christ. And some of them testify together that. Some of them were in the same jail together. But today they, they're brothers in Christ. And it's only the grace of God can do that, isn't it? And it's wonderful when you hear those testimonies. Jesus really wasn't politically correct. You know, to, to choose a zealot and a tax collector to be in that band, I mean, that wouldn't be politically correct because the Jews would certainly hate the tax collector and the Romans would be very suspicious of the zealot. You know, so if he's wanting to draw attention to for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> that would do it, to have those two alone. But Jesus didn't care about being PC. He didn't care about what Rome thought or, or what the religious establishment thought. He knew who he wanted. He had prayed all night up the mountain, we read that, to find out who would be his apostles. And he got these 12, all disparate people, different kinds and different personalities and different abilities and different backgrounds. We, we already seen that in our studies. But that's the people that Jesus chose, just like us. People just like us, just ordinary 5 eights people with all of our baggage and background and all of our mess-ups and all of that there. But Jesus chose us. Huh? In the providence of God, Christ came to us and he saved our eternal souls and drew us together as a people. And so, it's amazing how God can use your temperament. You see, the Lord saw something in Simon the Zealot that nobody else saw. He was passionate. He was hungry for the Messiah to come. He wanted to see his nation changed. He wanted to see the kingdom of God established in Israel. Albeit it was misplaced, that was not the type of kingdom Jesus was talking about. It was a spiritual kingdom initially, although he hadn't seen that. But Jesus saw that drive and that passion within him. And, and if he had him, and if he was able to, to change that and mold that uh, and sanctify that, then he could use him. Uh, I know God can give us all kinds of gifts and all of that there supernaturally, but John Calvin talked about common graces, natural abilities, natural giftings, and God can use that. God can use all of that if he sanctifies it, if he modifies it. He can use that for his honor and for his glory. And he did that with all of these disciples, every one of them he used. Some of it had to change dramatically and drastically. James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to bring fire down from heaven and burn those people up. He had to change that. John became the beloved disciple. 
And so God can use us or he can change us, he can mold us, he can shape us. And he saw something in Simon that if it was properly directed and focused, then it would be something that Jesus could use. And boy, he did use it. He did use it. So this military-minded man would become a missionary-minded man. He would lay down that arm struggle and he'd become a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ, a great missionary to the nations. What a change would be in his life. The before and after is amazing. And all of this is that testimony of before and after. If we're truly saved, there will be a change. There will be a before and after in our lives, and everybody will see it, and everybody will know it. Can you say amen? The Apostle Paul certainly believed that. And in, in Philippians, the Apostle Paul says something here in Philippians. I know I've said this before to you regulars, but for those of you who don't know this, it's worth repeating. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul's sharing a bit about his life here. In verse 10, he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But I press on. Dioko is the word. I follow after. I pursue fervently. That's what that means. Now, he had a passion for following the Lord, to pursue the Lord's will diligently, zealously, persistently, never giving up or never letting up. But it's interesting, in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, speaking about his former life when he was Saul of Tarsus before he became a believer. Verse 13, Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And the word persecuted there is the same word, daoko. Exact same word. So what's he saying? Do you remember the passion and the zeal that he had to kill Christians? When he was Saul of Tarsus, he was prepared to travel over a hundred miles just to find one believer to put them in jail or to kill them. He was the one who stood at the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was the one who stood where the cloaks was put at his feet as a witness. That was his zeal. That was his passion. He hated this sect of the Nazarenes, and he wanted to destroy them, to kill all of them. Now he says, that passion I had when I was in the world... He says, I haven't lost that passion. I haven't lost that zeal. But now it's redirected. Now I have that same passion, same zeal, only I'm using it for the right thing. I used to use that to, to, to destroy the church. Now I'm using it to build up the church. The reason why I say that is this. So many people, after they get saved, 
they lose their passion and lose their drive. They had more passion and drive for the world and the things of the world when they're in it than they have after they get saved. You'd think it would be the opposite, wouldn't you? So where is their zeal? What are we passionate about? There was things in the world we were passionate about. Are we passionate about the things of God? What is your temperament? Are you fiery? Are you passionate? Do you get heated up about certain things? Are you a risk taker? Do you take bold steps? Are you a plotter? Are you a steady eddy? Thank God for steady eddies and plotters. The church could not survive without them. Why? Because they're always in their place. They never miss unless they're sick or they're ill or something happens, but they're there. Steady eddies. The church is built on steady eddies and plotters. Thank God for them. Are you a visionary? Are you a dreamer of dreams? Whatever your temperament is, God can take it and he can sanctify it and he can modify it if necessary, but he can use it for his honor and for his glory. So where is our zeal today? Where's our zeal for God's house? Where's our zeal for God's word? Where's our zeal for reaching out to this community or to this world around us. I remember whenever I got saved right at the beginning, first couple of months, I worked in a factory and at the end of the shift, you had 15 minutes to wash up and then clock out. It was a three shift system. And I lost count of the many times in that 15 minutes after I washed up, before I clocked out, I'd go into the toilet, into the cubicle, and get out my wee New Testament. And I'd sit and read that. And the bell would go at 3 o'clock, and I didn't hear it. And maybe 15 minutes after 3, or 30 minutes after 3, I suddenly thought, it's very quiet in here. And then I realized, that time had passed, I was so engrossed in the Word that I didn't even know. And then I had to run down because my lift was waiting at the gate. Where were you, Gaudy? What were you doing, Gaudy? I says, oh, I was caught up in something there. I didn't dare tell him. He wasn't believe. I didn't tell him he was reading the New Testament. He'd have told me to get somebody else and give me a lift. But I didn't know then, you see. I, I wasn't reading that because I thought, well, one day I'm going to be a preacher, one day I'll be a pastor. I, I, that wasn't even a thought in my brain. It was just the love of God's words. And I loved it with a passion. And Sally could tell you, because she lives with me, I, I, lived, I live in this book continually. Sometimes she, she's like a, a widow in my house. She could tell you that. Never half sees me. I get in that room there sometimes I nearly forget to come out. I love the Word of God. Before I ever knew I was ever going to preach the Word of God, I had a love for it. And God saw that. He saw that in me. And He began to use that. Until the day I die, God willing, I will always love the Word of God and love to read it and to think about it and to share it. You know, those days in that little cubicle, I was sitting taking little notes, little thoughts was coming to me and was writing them down. Kind of wee many, many sermons. Had no idea that one day I'd be preaching those. 
But then I remember when I started to preach at the start, when I looked back at my first sermons, you young ones starting out now, and I'm letting you up here to preach. Be encouraged. When I started out, I'm embarrassed now looking back at my first sermons. I didn't know much. I just had a passion to do it, but I didn't know an awful lot. And some of the things I probably said then, I'm sure the pastor shook his head, thought, what is he saying there? But I learned, and I learned fast, and I had to learn. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to preach, I have got to know what I'm preaching about. Now, I never had the chance to go to Bible school. That opportunity never come up for me. But Sally could tell you, I've tried my life to make up for that. And I read and I read and I read and I study, 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 because I love it. I have a passion for it. That's me. But what are you? That's maybe not your passion. That's maybe not what... I I tell you how you know your passion. Whatever you spend your energy on, whatever you spend your time on, whatever you spend your money on, that's your passion. Whether it's good or bad, that's your passion. So if you wonder what is my passion, that you find out what do I give my time to, what do I give my money to, what do I give my energy to, because that's what your passion is. So have a think about that. God can take your passion, though, and he can use it for his glory. Maybe your passion's business. Maybe your passion is just to raise a wee family. What an honor it is to raise a family. Maybe that's your passion. You think, well, I wish I was doing this or that. God has given you a family to raise for his honor, for his glory. And if you're passionate about doing that, wonderful. Thank God for that. Because that's the next generation you're bringing up. So Christ was zealous, wasn't he? Christ was passionate. (laughs) Do you remember he went into the temple at the feast time? And you remember how they were buying and selling and exchanging money? You know, because in the feast times, people had come from all over the Roman Empire, uh, proselytes, people who had bought into Judaism from other lands. They would come there, but they would come with their money. They need to be changed. Or they need to buy an animal for sacrifice. And they're being charged exorbitant rates. And it'd be, the temple became a, a place of merchandise. And Christ hated that. And he went in and he made a whip of cords. And he drove them out and he kicked over the tables and he took them to the scruff of the neck and the seat of the punch and he threw them out. He had made my house a den of thieves, he says. This is a, a place of prayer and worship. And he was angry, zealous for the house of God. And the disciples, when they watched him, they remembered Psalm 69 and 9. The zeal of your house has eaten me up. I wish every believer had a zeal for the house of God. I really do. Because so many of us, we take it or leave it. So many as the attitude will be there next week. Listen, if we were in China today, it wouldn't be there next week. China is pulling down churches by the scores. China is trying to rewrite the Bible, making Christians read only their version of the Bible. So we, we couldn't take it or leave it was there. If you didn't take it, it mightn't be there next week. Communist lands, many of them are the same. And so give us a zeal for God's house. Give us a zeal for God's word. Give us a zeal for reaching other people, the message of Christ. Zeal is in fact, is 2 Corinthians 9 and 2. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Two chapters Paul preaches about one offering. 
Imagine two whole chapters, but one offering for the relief of the poor at Jerusalem. And he said to the Corinthians, he said, listen, he says, you've been zealous about this. You were going to do this. And he says, your zeal has provoked many. I've been talking about you everywhere I go. And it stirred people up to give to help the Christians at Jerusalem. See, they were Gentile Christians going to give to Jewish Christians. And he says, your zeal has stirred many up. Now he said, you promised us a year ago. You haven't done it yet. But I'm going to send somebody, and you better have it done when he comes. Paul wasn't very tactful as a pastor. He says, whenever they come, you better have this ready, because I've been boasting about you everywhere. I don't let me down now. Come on, get it done. Get that zeal going again. And here's what he said, 2 Corinthians 9 and 2. For the zeal in giving to God, he said, had provoked many. And then in Galatians 4.18, he says, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Sometimes it's hard to keep your zeal, isn't it? You know, you're zealous for a while, and then you kind of lose that passion, and then you get it back, and then you kind of lose it, and we're kind of up, and we're kind of down, in and out. It's hard to keep a zeal for the same thing continually in your life. But that's what God wants us to do. Romans 11 and 12, and the Amplified, never lag in zeal and an earnest endeavor. Be aglow and burning with the Spirit, serving the Lord. <clears throat> that's where women's aglow got there. They're saying from woman's aglow, be aglow and burning with the Spirit. Simon never lost his zeal for God. He became a passionate preacher to far-off lands. Some say, some say he came as far as Great Britain. Some say he died in Lancashire. That's only some say. It seems more likely that he traveled as far as Persia. Most historians feel he traveled as far as Persia and died there son and half for his testimony of Jesus Christ. They all died martyrs, you know, except John, who was a living martyr. But they all died as martyrs. They all died out there preaching, winning people to Christ, raising up churches, evangelizing, missionary evangelists, out there doing it for God. And Simon the Zealot, the ex-paramilitarist, the ex-terrorist, the ex-probably assassin, came to Christ. And that passion was turned around for good and for God's glory. Amen? Amen. And so God can turn us around for good and for his glory. No matter what our background, no matter where we came from, no matter what we've been involved in in the past, God can take us and use us in the kingdom, his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you would take us here today, each one of us individually, with all of our foibles and all of our nonsense at times, all of our mistakes and all of that, Lord, and yet in your mercy, you can change us and you can use us. And even that which is good things in us, you can take and use for your glory. So, Lord, we give you thanks 
for, for your forgiveness. We give you thanks for that day and hour whenever you came into our lives and you cleansed us. You washed us clean and every sin that we ever committed was forgiven and gone forever. We thank you for that. We thank you for your gospel, the good news that's still the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And Lord, we believed and you changed us with that power. So we give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk